0: All right, we have made it to the end of our sermon series in the book of Acts. I know I've gone through the book rather rapidly, but I, I didn't want to spend an entire year in Acts. We've kind of hit the high points. Uh, to catch you up, if you weren't here in previous weeks, Paul and a ship full of men were on their way to Rome when they were shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Amazingly, all 276 people aboard survived. And in our passage today, Acts 28, They are safely on the beach, they're alive, but they're soaked to the bone, they're freezing to death, cold and shivering, when the inhabitants of the island uh, very graciously come to the survivors and they start up several bonfires to help them dry off and get warm. Well, Paul uh, reaches down into a, a clump of sticks to throw some wood onto the fire, and of all things, a poisonous snake, you know, jumps out at him. So he survives a shipwreck only to be struck by a poisonous steak, uh, snake, not a stake. <laughs> and the natives, when they see this, they assume, well, they, they, it's very interesting because they're kind of like Job's friends in this way, that uh, they, they assume, well, he must be a murderer. In other words, like for for him to survive a shipwreck and then make it you know to land only to then be struck by a poisonous snake you know he must have done something terrible in his life and he must be a murderer why else would anybody um, you know be struck down by the goddess of justice on the land but Paul just ends up you know shaking the snake to the ground and, and over the next several days instead of getting sick he heals many on the island who are ill and in that respect it's a little picture of the cross isn't it where like Jesus on the cross takes all of the poison The the poison of evil into his own body and then becomes the instrument of healing for all of the nations So it's a picture of, of the cross Well, the whole book of acts builds from chapter 1 verse 8 where jesus says you will be my witnesses uh, In all of uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth Well here in chapter 28 we finally come to the ends of the earth This is the ends of the the earth the uttermost parts and what we're going to find is once again How how God's timing is so strange and his timing is not our timing and his ways are not our ways We hear that story um, many times in the Bible and we experience that in our lives in, in many many different ways So, let's pray, um, and we will then read the passage. Lord, we pray to you again, asking that the Holy Spirit, who wrote these words through Luke, would teach us now how to listen to his voice. We pray that we would um, hear and see Christ in the passage, and that we would better understand the ways of Christ, um, increase our knowledge um, of the Messiah, and deepen our trust in his mysterious and sometimes delayed timing. We want to be like they were faithful witnesses of the good news of Jesus you know, to the ends of the earth. And we pray that you would help us to become so here in the valley, in South Scottsdale, and, and across the valley. We ask these things. Speak to us, Lord, please. Um, let us hear you now. In the name of Jesus, amen. Acts twenty-eight verse eleven. After three months, we set sail in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island, with the twin gods as its figurehead. Twin gods were the uh, sons of Zeus, and they were thought to uh, protect sailors. And, and so there they were on the ship itself. Putting in it at Syracuse, we stayed three days, and from there, after making a circuit along the coast, we reached Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and the second day, we came to a Puteoli. There we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay a week with them, and so we came to Rome. Now, the brothers and sisters from there had heard the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. Then we entered Rome, when we entered Rome, that is, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier <clears throat> who guarded him. After three days, he called together the leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. After they examined me, they wanted to release me, since there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal my case to Caesar, even though I had, had no charge to bring against my people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and to speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Uh, Then they said to him, Well, we haven't received any letters about you from Judea. None of the brothers has come and reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we want to hear what your views are, since we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. Well, after arranging a day with him, many came to him at his lodging, and from dawn to dusk he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. Disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors, to the prophet Isaiah, when he said, and here I think he's quoting Isaiah 6, go to these people and say, you will always be listening, but never understanding. You will always be looking, but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, the Athanos, and they will listen. Well, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What a strange ending (laughs) to the story. I mean, you think about it, the last third of the book of Acts has been about Paul gaining the opportunity to travel to Rome and the chance to stand before, you know, the imperial majesty, the the Caesar himself before Nero. Um, The the whole third of the book has been about his journey there, the last third, that is. And and when he finally makes it to Rome, uh, you know, what happens next? Does he get his day in court? Does he appear before the Caesar? Does he, does he win his case? Is he released? It's like, come on, Luke. The author, ble- tell us. Just tell us. And yet at the very end of the story, you realize question after question goes unanswered, and you're left with what you'd have to agree with is just a very abrupt ending. You know, I think it's also ironic that we have you know, arguably the most important book of the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans, He's already written that. It's already been sent to them. They've already read it. They already know about it. And yet, here at the end, when he's meeting the Romans for the first time, the Roman Christians, that is, do we hear anything about his interactions with them? Like, hardly none at all. And so the question is, why conclude uh, the book of Acts like this? Why write it with Paul's story never completed? Why keep it so open-ended? Why? and what i'm going to what i'm going to uh, argue is simply that it's actually a great ending it's a perfect ending to the book because it shows us uh, three three very important things number one the purposefulness in god's delays I, to illustrate this i have to do a really quick re- recap of from basically 46 ad to 58 ad about 12 years Paul, the Apostle Paul, was on a church-planting tear. I mean, he was a beast. He was an animal. He traveled thousands of miles throughout the Roman Empire. He started tons of churches. He was by far the most active and successful uh, missionary in the early church uh, by a long measure. But in 58, like, all of that stops. It, It all changes when he's arrested He then spends two years in a prison in the city of Caesarea. After that, he spends another six months in that ill-fated journey across the Mediterranean where he is shipwrecked. And then once he arrives in Rome, he spends another two years under house arrest. Now, house arrest, I mean, it's better than being put in a dungeon, for sure. It's not like he's in this dark, ugly, you know, cold cell. He's still allowed to move around the city. He's still allowed to welcome visitors but he's likely chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. And so right at the peak of his effectiveness as a missionary and church planter, he basically spends five years in captivity. He doesn't plant a single church. He, he can't you know, be out of his own room for just more than a few hours in a day. It, it had to, it, For a guy like that, it had to make his stomach sick. Like it had to be so frustrating. Surely he, he, answer, he asked the question, like the same question that you and I ask, when things are going bleakly for us. Why? Why, Lord? Well, you know what ends up happening over those next two years? Well, the first thing that happens is there ha- there's a church in Philippi that is in ancient Greece, which heard that Paul was in prison, So they sent a man by the name of Epaphroditus with money and provisions to help Paul in Rome. He, he carried those to Paul and he encouraged him. And during the time that Epaphroditus was there, he became very sick, and Paul was worried that this friend, this emissary, would end up dying, but he recovers. And so in order to send him back to the people, uh, he does so with uh, great thanks, and he writes this letter, and it's of course the letter to the church at Philippi, or the letter of Philippians. Well, the next thing happens is, you know, when he was out in the, the Roman Agora in the marketplace, he comes across a slave, a runaway slave, and his name is Onesimus. He, he happens to actually have an owner whose name is Philemon, who Paul knew Philemon from previous missionary work. And, um, and he basically takes on Onesimus as a protege. In fact, Ones- Onesimus comes to faith In Jesus, through Paul, during his time of house imprisonment, and so what Paul does is um, he decides, you know, I got to send him back because he's stolen money, uh, he's run away. But Paul promises that he will pay whatever debt Onesimus owes to Philemon, and he very strongly hints in the letter that he writes that you should emancipate him, you should you should free him, and to consider him no longer. The language that uses no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother in the Lord. And so he sends him with the letter uh, to Philemon. Well, in addition, uh, he sends a letter to a church in the same town, the city of Colossae, and instructs Christians how to uh, resist false teaching that was spreading there. And so he sends not one, but two letters to Colossae. And then finally, he writes another letter, very similar to the letter to the Colossians. It says it's written to the city of Ephesus, which is in Turkey. But more than likely, a lot of the early manuscripts don't have the words to Ephesus. And given the fact that Paul had probably spent nearly two years there, and there are no no like specific greetings to people at the end of the letter, I maybe mean, he spent two years in a place, he would be saying, like, greet ampliatus, saying, and greet uh, st- Sturges and Stryophanes and you know all all the kinds of there's none of that in the letter to Ephesians But it's very similar to the letter uh, to the Colossians And so he sends it we think somewhere into western turkey possibly to the city of Laodicea And there we get the letter to uh, as it's now known to Ephesians So what's the point that i'm making? Well four letters boundless impact like paul's House arrest legacy. It it highlights the remarkable influence on Christianity through his writings during this time of confinement. Like he reached far beyond what he could have, whatever could have been achieved through his uh, uh, own physical freedom alone. He reaches beyond it through the power of the pen. And when he's writing those letters, do you think that he that he knew that they would be included in the Bible? No, but they were. I think likewise, when we too go through perplexing moments in life we want to know, why do things happen this way? Why are we suffering in this way? There's that beautiful hymn written by an English uh, poet and hymn writer, William Cooper. The, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. That's a great poetic line to which we, uh, add on to the end of it, when God plants his footsteps in the sea, you can't trace the footprints, can you? Because it's in the sea. And it's usually very difficult during the perplexing and, su- and suffering moments of life to understand, like, what would, what is God up to here? Because Paul didn't know that he was up to writing four books of the Bible during his two years of confinement. It's only usually through the benefit of hindsight that we are able to, to barely make out the truth of it. You know, the challenge for us as believers in Jesus is to have a patient, enduring faith um, in those moments and and to not just kick against and and bristle against the delays, but in some strange strange way embrace them. Embracing the hardships with hope. um, Embracing the delays with hope. uh, Embracing the things that are so difficult to understand somewhere with, with hope. And that's what you see modeled time and again in the book of Psalms. I mean, so many times, Psalms are filled with prayers of suffering people. But I don't know if you've noticed this. In virtually every one of the Psalms, by the time you get to the end of the Psalm, uh, there's always going to be some note of hope that the Psalm ends on. Like, I know uh, a note of hope. Like, I know I will see your goodness in the land of the living. I, I know that you will be with me. I, you know, just something along those lines. I mean, even the statement of Joseph in the book of Genesis, he says, like, what you intended for evil, and it was evil, God actually intended for good. That was something, um, you know, not a trope that he put on a coffee mug. It was something he undoubtedly told himself again and again and again in hope. I don't know what God is doing. I wouldn't do it this way. But I know that Jesus loves me, and my trust is well placed in him, and I'm going to cling to him no matter what. That's what we say in the moments. That's how we express our hope. You know, in Psalm 23, it says that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So you get the image. We're we're going in this deep and dark valley. We are walking through it, but then there's a moment in the valley where the psalmist no longer walks, but he sits. We cannot try as we might skip over the valley, fly through the valley. We can't do that. We can't um, skip over valleys that God wants us to sit in But what is a sitting in psalm 23? And lo he prepares a table for me in the midst of my enemies. There's a celebratory like meal somehow that God places In the valley of the shadow of death that you're able to sit down and eat at And hope and so that's number one the uh the purposefulness in God's delays. Number two, the appeal to a Jewish family. You notice that there's a major emphasis on the ending here. Paul's speech to his fellows Jews in verse 28. Uh, these are his last recorded words, and they seem kind of anticlimactic. You, you almost like, these are the last words of Paul. Luke, couldn't you have done better than this? Here they are. Uh, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Why were these the last words? Well, you, you can't underestimate just how much Paul loved his people, loved the Jews. I mean, even though he became an apostle to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, you know, there's that spot in uh, Romans chapter 9, I think it is, verse 3, where he says, I love my people so much that like, I, would, I would be willing to be cursed by God. If that meant that they would be blessed, like I would in an instant basically go to hell if it meant that they could be saved and and go to heaven. So send me now, Lord. Like that's how much his heart beat for for his fellow Jewish people. You know, to understand this last speech, I want you to imagine a daughter who was born into a very rich or aristocratic English family and kind of lives in, you know, the proverbial English castle up on the hill. She is beautiful, she's, um, uh, her hair is dark, her skin is is very pale, very white, because her family doesn't let her go outside. Her parents have told her that, you know, respectable British ladies, uh, they must spend most of their time indoors, reading books and, and I don't know, drinking tea and sewing, what, what have you. But one bright summer English morning, the temptation for her to go out proves too great. She starts out on this long walk through the hills and um, just on her own to explore the estate. She hadn't been out for a long time, and and there she goes. And as she comes to the top of a hill, she looks down upon a stream that bisects the lower valley, and there, to her surprise, she spies a group of squatters, like very poor people in, in tattered and ragged clothes. And they're, um, they're in the stream. They're playing in the stream. They're splashing and, and, and just having, it looks like they're having the time of their lives in this you know, English stream. And at first, do you know how the daughter feels? She is angry. You know, how dare they venture into my estate? You know, but the longer she watches the squatters and their revelry, the more the anger subdues and is replaced with a strange feeling called jealousy. And there comes from deep within her this, this, this yearning to like join with them. I mean, after all, it's, it is her land. It is her land. It's her stream. Uh, it's her stream to be enjoyed. And they look so happy. Like, what could be more natural than to like join in the celebration with them as well? And see, I think that, you know, that in a nutshell is Paul's vision for his ministry to the non-Jews in in light of his uh, own Jewish people. It's the power of jealousy. Like, Paul's quest to inspire um, faith through joyful community, through the joyful community of the New Testament church. Like, he wanted to put that same kind of feeling in the hearts of his own people, the same kind of yearning, like, look how happy these new people, these squatters are because of Jesus. Um, His aim was to make them jealous, you know, because of this community that was centered around the gospel. That, okay, let's step into the 21st century. I, I think that's a fairly, like, good philosophy of ministry, because <laughs> when I look out on our world today, I don't find, I don't think a lot of people in our cultural moment are, are all that joyful, are all that satisfied, are all that, like, fulfilled. I mean, it seems to me right now we are in um, a very, you know, obviously polarized and lonely Dry point in our culture, and I think that like if Christ's antidote in in that day um, to a dry cultural moment was infectious joy, like maybe that would work, you know, in our day as well. Like you gotta have, you gotta have, um, you gotta have like an infectious joy in Jesus to be able to give that um, to someone else. I think and make them make them pay attention to it. Like, if, I were to, if you came to me and said, like, Brad, how is your marriage to Aaron? And I said, well, to be honest with you, I, I think she's pretty difficult to deal with. <laughs> and she can just re- regularly get on my nerves. But I, I gave her my word. I said I do. I made a promise. I'm a man of my word. I'll, still f- I'll stay faithful uh, to my word, you know, for the rest of my long, 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 long life. Like, is anybody, is anybody going to hear that and say, oh, I want some of that? Like, I want that for me. Like, when I was a little girl or boy, I dreamed of just that, a commitment that was so strong that it can endure the most horrific of circumstances. Like, that, I mean, nobody's going to want to get married after they hear that kind of testimony. But thankfully, um, that's definitely not my experience of marriage in the, in the slightest. Uh, you know, joy is infectious when you have it. And, yeah, I think what we've tried to do over the last year in, this, in our church plant is like if we could create a community that loved being together and that loved each other and that loved Jesus and just genuinely felt like, like that was real and that was there, uh, the hope was that and it is still that like God would bring some other people who are who are lonely and needy and and they would be, they would they would taste and see that it was good, and so I think that's what we need to keep praying for. Um, I, obviously, one of the greatest challenges we face as a church plant is. We don't get many visitors, do we, <laughs> for the most part? Uh, funny that we got a couple t- today. So glad to have you, you both. But uh, we haven't had many visitors. And so I think we do have so- something that approximates a-, a contagious, infectious joy. But we just haven't had much of the opportunity to, like, share that with others. So maybe one of the most important things we can do as a body is to just pray um, more for that, that God— God would give us a chance to to show that to others in the coming year finally number three the fate of the apostle Paul what ended up happening to him well uh, it suggested that the Roman courts they had like our courts statutes of limitations the prosecution in a given Roman case would have up to two years to uh, you know try their case in like to have their day in court and if they didn't show up then the case would be dismissed. Well, it's a very long way to travel from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And if you remember in the book, uh, so far the different times they have tried to prosecute thus far, they didn't do a very good job of it. And so it's most, we think, most likely that Paul actually never came to trial because his accusers never actually made it to Rome. Tradition is that Paul was released, and then he spent about eh, two more years traveling many think that he made it all the way to spain and then from spain he went back to ephesus and in the city of ephesus he was arrested he was then again brought to rome and then nero had paul beheaded uh, in 68 a.d if that's what happened why why doesn't luke tell us any of it and the answer well it's kind of obvious because it hadn't happened yet like Paul, I mean Luke, ends his writing while Paul is still under house arrest. I wonder actually if Luke hadn't planned to do maybe a third volume, and so he ends, he finishes the second volume. The first volume was Luke, the second volume was Acts. He was actually planning a third volume, and yet he never got around to write it. Um, Maybe, speculation, there's a deeper reason um, that Luke doesn't tell us any of it, and perhaps you've already sensed it. The reason the Holy Spirit never tells us what happened to Paul at the end of Acts, is because the book was never about Paul, was it? It was always about Jesus. You know, at the very start of the book, he says, most excellent Theophilus, I-, I write to tell you about the things that Jesus continued to do and teach after he had been taken up into heaven. He continued to do and t- teach, you know, through his spirit, uh, by his spirit and through his church. And you know, I find it really interesting If we were reading through the original Greek, the last word in the book of Acts is this one, unhindered. It says, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. that's, That's the... That's the, uh, the note that the whole thing ends on. Like, it, What matters is not whether Paul lives or dies. What matters is that the gospel through the church will continue to go out unhindered. Even though it looks like it's severely hindered, Luke says it's not. It's unhindered. Let me conclude with this. So uh, Aaron and I, we have gotten into a Netflix show called Breakpoint it's a sports documentary. It's done by the same people who did the uh, Formula One documentary series. Uh, I, th- I forgot the name of it, maybe Need for Speed. Anybody watch Breakpoint? It follows professional tennis players. and kind of looks at th- the intense world of uh, pro tennis, where God, winning for them, is just, it is a matter of life and death. You, know, you just see through these interviews with these tennis players um, the tremendous, immense pressure that they're under. They don't go into a match... And, and are like, I'll give it my best shot, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, if my best is good enough, great, and if it's not good enough, that's okay, they were better than me on the day, they're like, no, they're like, I must win at all costs, I cannot lose, and the weight, as you can imagine, the weight of that kind of expectation is just suffocating on them, and it ends up creating, um, it, may, it, it ends up like inhibiting their play, and and making them lose. That's why it's called break point, because it's the point at which they break. I think we all can relate to that, can't we? The, The suffocating pressure on things that we care about the most, we've witnessed it in ourselves and in others, like raising our kids. Just the suffocating pressure of, I gotta do this right, I gotta have my kids turn out right, or um, maybe it's the suffocating pressure of professional success. I, I gotta achieve. I gotta I gotta achieve. I gotta make This out or the other um, the suffocating pressure of maybe a romantic relationship Or even the suffocating pressure of planting a church <laughs> if you're a pastor What's so beautiful about the end of the book of acts is this belief that There is no suffocating pressure with the gospel It will go forward that's what matters. And, you know, it may go forward through us. We certainly hope it will. Um, every one of us is going to soon be forgotten. It, it's amazing how quickly uh, we live and die. And the next thing you know it, I, I mean, we're not even remembered. How much do you know about your own great great grandparents or great 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 grandparents? We're here for just a little while, an incredibly little while. I think it's, it's wonderful that God would invite us to, to play any role in this grand story of salvation, uh, that we could play any part in this grand, you know, take the world by storm story of the unstoppable, unhindered gospel of Jesus Christ. Increasingly, what I want my dream to be <laughs> is that I would give that gospel you know, to others and increasingly that's what I want for you that you would you would give it to your your spouse You would give it to your kids. You would give it to your neighbor You would give it to your colleagues at work. You would give it to your fellow students um, The goodness and the sweetness and the joy of jesus christ, you know one other Yeah, the reason the finishes open-ended is because you know, It's still being written somehow or another through you and me today albeit mysteriously with delays, with arrests perhaps, with shipwrecks, and even still, unhindered, um, unhindered to the end of time. Amen.